All right, and this is episode five of the podcast. And today I have with me Ken Piedra, who is our head of product uh, of Softyware. And today we're gonna to be discussing what is our area of expertise. Um, both of us have long experience in finance and in specifically in FinTech. And FinTech is financial technology. Um, and so today we wanna to talk about data and uh, we had a phone call a couple a couple nights ago with a guy who's planning to build a fintech app, and we started asking him questions about data and realized um, how really unprepared he was. He hadn't thought of a lot of things, and so um, I want to go over those kinds of questions for anyone who's interested in creating a fintech app, just so that you know what are the right questions you should be asking about data. So. With that, um, let's get the ball rolling. So, uh, Ken, let's get started with what kinds of stock data are there out there in the universe? Yeah, so there's a ton of different types of securities data out there in the universe. Obviously, there's uh, U.S. Uh, data, which is primarily focused on here, but obviously there's global securities data. Um, and then you have other breakdowns, right? So you have things like fundamental and estimates data which is relevant to uh, see uh, how a company might be doing. And then you have uh, other types of data, such as um, like company data, like some metadata, maybe some stuff about the amount of employees they have. Maybe it's about uh, who their, uh, who their owner, who their, uh, who's on their board, things like that. That's a lot, very relevant for a lot of people. Um, as you know, like Elon Musk makes a statement, everybody knows he's associated with Tesla and his statements drive uh, sometimes the market of his security. So um, just as, as a small example. And then um, you have uh, alternate data. So there's other things that other factors or, or changes that are happening in the world that might impact security uh, performance as well. Um, and so that's relevant. And there's also economic data, right? So that things that are happening again within a particular region or within a particular industry um, that could impact um, how the markets are, are reacting um, too. So there's a wealth of a lot of different data. And obviously the biggest one that we all see every day when we go to look at securities and things like that is price volume data. And that's really the basic of how frequently or how much something is traded and then obviously the price fluctuation in which we currently have. So, um, you know, when you are looking at trying to get into a fintech marketplace, that's a lot of different things uh, to look at, as well as quantitative algorithms and other types of um, um, calculations and, and, and predictions that are, are made on, on data, which is obviously relevant as well. Yeah. Okay, so... So that's a, a pretty broad range of financial data, um, beginning with stock data. And I think probably even just if we spent our, our full podcast on stock data, then it's probably sufficient. <clears throat> so you mentioned, um, you mentioned stock data, which of course we're talking about price data, price and volume. Um, and then we have uh, fundamental data. So fundamental data is like sales of the company and, and stuff like that. You talked about the metadata that's associated with companies. So you have uh, for that company, you have all kinds of information about the company that, um, you know, might be listed on the uh, about us page on their website. And, uh, and then you talked about um, alternative data, alt data, and uh, 
I think alt data probably in itself, we could do a podcast just on alt data because that's really um, a big thing. I think a lot of people would have questions about alt data. I'm just going to say, we'll spend a lot of time in another podcast talking about alt data. Um, <clears throat> so going back to stock data, a lot of people, um, in this gentleman we talked to a couple nights ago, he mentioned that he had found a good deal on a couple uh, data providers. He, when he mentioned them, we had not heard of them before. Uh, and so we, you know, being in FinTech for 15 years, you'd think we would have heard of, of the data providers he was planning to use, but he, but he was using data providers we've never heard of. And, you know, lo and behold, he got a good deal. He said, it's a, it's a pretty good price on the data. And uh, so if a person has found a good deal on stock market data, what should they be considering in terms of what trade-off they made to pay a low, a low cost? Right, so obviously the, the idea is, is whatever data that you are obtaining, how are you going to use it? And if you're selling the data or redistributing the data, how is your end client gonna use it? And so the key thing is to make sure the data is um, um, good and or determine how much cleaning of the data that you're gonna have to do on, on your end to kind of make it work for um, your application, right? Um, so key things I think are is understanding the frequency, right? So if everybody's right now wants to get real-time data because people are becoming day traders with how uh, crazy the market's fluctuating with certain securities and things like that. So um, getting real-time data can be very expensive. Um, but if you want to do like 15-minute delayed or, or some sort of other um, set of data that's not necessarily right up to the, very, right up to the minute, right up to the last trade, um, you need to consider that, but you want to also consider um, where you're going to house the data, right? So are you going to keep it on a uh, local database? Are you going to have the data streamed directly to a website? Um, those are some of the considerations that you're going to have to think through. And then um, as you start digging down deeper, you'll want to see how much data are you going to have? Is it going to be historical? How far are you going to go back? How much, how much storage is that going to create? Do you have security for this data? Because you're going to pay for it. You got to make sure that nobody's able to kind of steal it either from your back end or from directly from your website. So those are some of the considerations you have to think of as well. Um, and then as far as the data itself, uh, again, trusting the source. So we kind of talked about this once before, but like if you're a journalist, um, you can write up a story about anything. And if you're a really good writer, people will believe it. But if your source is no good, then your credibility goes down. So make sure your data, data is credible and you'll have to ask the data provider a slew of questions, right? Uh, how do they handle um, corporate actions? How do they handle uh, changes or, or sometimes, you know, there's, there's, there's human element to things. Sometimes things are reported incorrectly or things like that. How do they handle those types of things, those type of corrections um, that sometimes happen with uh, financial data? Um, and uh, how do they handle uh, um, regime changes or security changes, things like that. So there's a lot of uh, things to kind of factor in uh, when you're working with data providers to make sure that, that you get all the information that you need to be able to handle the data uh, on your end. Um, there's one thing I also that I forgot to mention that's really relatively important, and that is the pricing um, of the data. So is it, um, you know, when you go back in time, has it taken, taken consideration reverses and splits and things of that nature are, or, or do you have the factor that you kind of need to be able to represent that information correctly? So that's important as well. Right. So I think corporate actions, we could probably um, discuss that really quick. So 
you mentioned corporate actions and corporate actions are mergers and acquisitions and companies will do deals with other companies. Sometimes they have spinoffs. So you have, you know, for instance, back in the eighties, you had Ma Bell spinning off um, a bunch of smaller issues. And so an owner of a certain stock, like if you're of the shareholder of record of a certain stock, you can end up then owning two more other stocks. You know, if they have two spinoffs, potentially you have multiple shares of those. Um, and so there's factors and, um, but let's, let's talk about the corporate actions, first of all, in relation to the price of the stock. And um, this is something that I think a lot of people really don't think about. You think about just this big table, right? One single table of, of the ticker symbol and then the price and then the date, right? But it's not quite that simple. So let's, why don't you just talk a bit, little bit about corporate actions and how it impacts uh, the prices going back historically. Right, so when there's splits or something like that, there might be a security that has a value right now, let's say it's Apple, it might have a value of, of 125 or something along those lines. But if you look at the security, maybe a couple of years ago it was valued at 400 and you're like, there's no way Apple dropped that much. Well, that was a split and people got more shares and it drove the price down. Um, so you gotta make sure that um, that is accounted for in your historical data. So that way, um, you need to know, you know, whether or not um, that change is reflected going in the past and then how it will be handled kind of going forward. Um, and so that kind of stuff is really important to kind of get from your data provider to make sure that they, they, they tell you uh, what type of, uh, is it real time as it happened data or is it, um, I forget the word for it, Tim, maybe you can help me. For, uh, adjusted, yeah, adjusted. adjusted versus not adjusted. Yes. Yeah. So, um, that's that's like I said, it's it's simple math, really. But also, um, I brought up a very simple uh, situation. But there's sometimes there's situations that are much more complex, and so you want to make sure you get adjusted versus not adjusted. How you want to kind of work that into your in your platform? Yeah, good point. And if, so, if you go back, <clears throat> if you go back in time to say, you know, 1990, and you have uh, a list of all your stocks, the question. Is, is, are those prices as of the date that, um, that you have? So if you have, you know, January 1st, 1990. So do you have, um, if those prices, if it says $20 for AT&T, for example, I don't know what, what, what AT&T was, but um, let's say it's $20 a share for AT&T. Is that $20 what it was on that day or is that the adjusted price? So they're adjusting for all the splits that have occurred since then. And so then maybe, instead of showing $20, maybe it would show $5 a share. But if you were actually alive and awake on January 1st, 1990, and you pulled up your stock ticker feed and you see AT&T, then you would have seen $20. But today, if we adjust for all of the adjustments in, in some companies, it's a lot more like IBM and um, you know Cisco is a huge example. They split, like, I don't know how many times they split. It was ridiculous. Um, but they kept splitting during the 90s um, when the stock market was just skyrocketing. So um, this, is, this is an important consideration and you have to think of your use case and what you're, what you're using it for. So if, you, um, if you're gonna be doing back testing and you have historical prices, then how do you wanna treat those prices, right? Uh, so anyway, so if a person had um, $1,000 to spend on January 1st, 1990, are they buying the stock at $20 or do you want to use the adjusted price and have them buying at $5? So 
Um, anyway, it's, it's uh, all these things need to be considered. So, um, and then uh, let's see with, yeah. So with adjustments, I mean, adjustments, you have to really handle the calculation. You have to, you have to, you have to really be careful about your calculations and, um, and to your point, whether it's adjusted or unadjusted. And then another thing you mentioned, um, or maybe you didn't, but it's the, it's the identifier. So let's talk a bit about the security identifier. So when you buy a bunch of stock market data, there has to be some way that you identify what the security is, right? So in the database, and, and a lot of people think, well, of course, it's just the ticker, right? But tickers can change over time. In fact, um, you know, you had you had brought up on a previous uh, discussion that HD could be used for Home Depot, but then at one point maybe it was Harley Davidson. So there was there was there's even examples of big companies that that use tickers um, that are the same as tickers by other companies. So if you had HD in your database, then what stock is that? Is that Home Depot or is that Harley Davidson? Um, and that's just one example. There's there's many examples of these all throughout the years if you're on a bunch of exchanges. So talk a little bit about uh, your experiences handling security identifiers, the different uh, different security identifiers available. Of course, it won't be comprehensive, but you know, just throw out there some of your thoughts on that. Right, sure. So um, you definitely want to ask uh, your data provider if they have any identifier for the security, so that way it can be tracked back in time for any changes. So. Um, uh, securities uh, symbol can change in the marketplace if the company name changes or if there's a merger or an acquisition or something along those lines or some other corporate action that might have caused um, that sort of change to have to take place. So um, you want to make sure you're able to kind of be able to track that kind of stuff all the way back in time. Um, we kind of talked about once before um, whether QSIP was good for you being a unique identifier, but something's very simple as changing your name from incorporated to corp could change your QSIP symbol. And so if that's the case, you wanna make sure that there's a unique identifier to kind of go through that. Um, the unique identifiers are also relevant because it's also a way to kind of um, track your security sometimes across multiple different platforms. And there are actually identifiers that are shared across multiple platforms. So if let's say you're getting your price volume data from one source, but from another source, you wanna get your fundamental and estimates data, um, you want to be able to marry that kind of stuff together. I found that the best way to kind of marry uh, things together for unique identification is using the ticker symbol and the exchange along with the start and end date. Uh, typically speaking, if you can get those four, get those things, um, uh, if you get those things provided, you're able to kind of find out what's going on with a particular stock at any point, at any given, given point in time. So, um, and have a unique um, identification for that. So, but again, every company that I've worked with, uh, that we've, I've used maybe five or six different data providers. Uh, they've all had their own unique identifier. So kind of making sure that that's the case with when you're getting data isn't very important. Yeah, and, and so the providers you're talking about are Bloomberg, um, Thomson Reuters, Standard & Poor's. We've also worked with Morningstar. Um, and then I... Uh, at one point I was building a little FinTech app and I was using Quandl, um, but Quandl, it was, it was, they were using one of the Quandl uh, marketplace providers called Sharadar. Uh, Sharadar. Have you ever heard of Sharadar, Ken? I've never heard of Sharadar. I think so. <laughs> so 
Um, anyway, there's nothing wrong with Sheridan. They're, they're just not a high quality data provider. They're, they are cheap. So if you're looking to build a FinTech app and you wanna get um, data on the cheap, there are definitely providers um, you can find with cheap data. Um, so, so there was Sheridar. I'm sure there's others on the Quando marketplace. There's other marketplaces. I don't even remember what the guy had mentioned a, a couple nights ago, but to your point, Bloomberg, um, Morningstar, Thomson Reuters, Standard & Poor's, we had FactSet, we also had CapIQ. All of them, in addition to having the standard um, <clears throat> globally available identifiers like the QSIP, which by the way, um, we had experiences with a QSIP with a couple companies, um, and that was we had been using the QSIP in our in our internal system, and then we discovered that that was actually against, uh, I believe it's Standard & Poor's who owns the QSIP, and um, so we had to remove it from the database because um, Standard & Poor's doesn't allow you to use it for any reason without licensing it from them. And when I looked into for uh, Equium for our last company, I looked into licensing, this is really early on, um, looked into what it would take to license the QSIP. I believe it was something like $50,000, $100,000. It was a crazy amount of money. So obviously um, that was just off the table. Like if you can use a different identifier, why would you pay 50,000 for one? So, <clears throat> but Standard Poor's, Thomson Reuters, et cetera, they all have their own identifier. But the, the thing about that is, like if you get, if you're using, um, if you rely on a, an identifier coming from one of those guys, and then you go buy data from an alternate provider and some alternative data or, um, you know, some private data provider, and they don't have the Thomson Reuters identifier, then how are you going to match up? How are you going to, going to um, match up the data, uh, the data sets, right? So there's a lot of, there's a lot of, pain in the neck questions you all, pretty much always deal with when you're um, bringing in data. And I don't know, Ken, if you have any, if you have any of stories off the top of your head. Um, oh, that, that, it can be definitely be a pain, but knowing, I think doing a little bit of research and understanding how companies are handling or dealing with um, the security changes and things like that and, and changes in unique identifiers is important. So kind of going back and finding security that you know has had corporate actions or was known as something else before in the past, and then trying to track that history um, through the data provider kind of give you a really good example of, to test to make sure that, hey, this is consistent or they kind of have a break at some point in time and then start anew. So again, historically, typically this is a problem, but um, it can also be a problem as you're gaining new securities. Obviously, new securities are IPOing every day and things like that. So there's going to have to be a, a start date for new security. And maybe they're using a symbol that was used two years ago. So you want to make sure those two things aren't um, thought of as in the same way when you're looking at your information historically. Um, and that's the key. And, but like I said before, you know, if you're using multiple different data providers, uh, using the symbol, the exchange, and the start and end date for the security is usually a really good start to be able to figure out the relationship between uh, the symbols, mm -hmm. as opposed to just using the symbol by itself. Especially when you're talking about, obviously, um, US stock market data, that's one thing. But then if you're into global data, um, they'll have securities on other exchanges, like Microsoft obviously is on multiple different exchanges and it's priced differently in, in Canada and in the European exchanges and things like that than it is in the US. So that's the kind of things like that are kind of important to keep track of as well.
Yeah, for sure. So I remember one example was IBM. Um, people people think of well, I you know IBM stock is just IBM, and what's the big deal? But IBM had something like seven or eight tickers, something like that, and they were on different exchanges, but there are also different classes of stock that they have. So um, and this is sometimes can be a shock for someone who buys a data set or who's looking into a data set and they discover that there's a lot of things they have to decide whether um, am I going to take up pick up all different classes of the stock or am I going to pick up how many different exchanges will I have will I only have the U.S. exchanges will I only have the major U.S. exchanges uh, so there's there's a lot of um, decisions to be made so uh, what I want to ask is what happens when you purchase a data subscription. So you, you know, you've been through this many times where the company makes a purchase of data and then you're like, okay, now you're at ground zero. Here's, um, here's the data set. What goes, what, what happens next? Yeah. So the next thing you want to worry about is how the data is going to be delivered to you. Um, so sometimes uh, some companies, some of the bigger companies will have a situation where you can plug in directly to a database and they work with you to kind of populate all the data on the database and you're able to kind of make your queries and things like that from there to pull out what you feel is relevant for your application. And then other uh, situations, they give you an API or you get an API key and maybe you have to call the API and then import the data directly into um, a database. Or another possibility is they're streaming the data directly um, to you um, maybe through um, uh, a streaming service and strictly into your into your application. So um, with that being said, um, again, knowing what you're using the data for and who your client base is and how relevant historical um, data is and how relevant it is for somebody to go back and back test or check the history of something um, kind of determines what use case works best for you. Uh, every time I've dealt with uh, big parts of data, I've always wanted to use a, uh, create a database and be able to kind of be able to track and, and store things there historically. So that's, that's been the way I go. Yeah, and, and um, we had the experience of different data providers like um, I think it was Thomson Reuters that, um, and I might be wrong, might be either, I don't know if it was Thomson Reuters or Standard Poor's, but they actually wanted to create, they, they wanted us to set up a database, a uh, big Microsoft server, um, database where they would have access to the server where they could go in and update the data on a daily basis. Um, I don't know if you knew which, which provider that was, but, um, but that's one example of how a data provider will, uh, will deal with data. And this is of course, one of the premium data providers and um, you know, with a premium data provider. Yeah. So another thing I wanted to touch on in this, this trigger for me was cleaning the data. You mentioned cleaning the data and I think a lot of people who go and, and buy the cheaper data sets would be surprised to find out that um, what you're losing is some data accuracy. And those smaller companies, I mean, let's face it, if a company is 20 bucks a month for data or hundred bucks a month for data and Standard & Poor's is 15,000 a month for the same amount of data, then there's a difference there. And the difference is that Standard & Poor's has hundreds of people on staff, maybe thousands. Who, whose primary role is just to go uh, into the data set and constantly be updating and fixing errors with the data. And of course they have millions of users who um, can all be sort of a, a test universe through are gonna say, hey, if this price doesn't look correct to me, it's off by a cent. Like literally that's how silly, it, that's, well, 
it's not silly, but if, if you're talking millions of shares, it's then that's a, a significant amount. Um, but so cleaning the data is something that the smaller providers can't afford to do. So you know they they spent their time getting free data from sources over 20 years or whatever, and they uh, compiled a data set. But when they got the data, some of that data had errors in it, and they didn't have you know they didn't have the uh, the update from the provider, right? Because they weren't paying for it. So, um, and obviously if they paid for the data from the provider then they don't own it, um, even, even though they paid for it, they don't, they don't own that data. They can't resell that data to someone else. So um, let's spend a, I don't know if I, did I ask you the question about cleaning? Yeah, so what are your experiences with data cleaning and, and um, you know, how much data needs to be cleaned in, in a, and uh, how, how much is it updated? And you know, can I just assume that 99% of it's gonna be fine? Right, um, so with any data provider, regardless of how big or how small they are, you wanna make sure that um, you understand um, the data that you're getting and ask a lot of questions uh, for things that may not look right to you. Um, so kind of have to go in there and do some, and digging around and testing uh, on your own just to make sure that things make sense. I think some of the bigger providers, if there's something really strange, like a variance that doesn't look right or something like that, they'll get an alert and they'll go in and check and make sure that it's legit. And then if not, go in and make unnecessary changes and things like that. But um, like I said, there are restatements of things. There's things that change um, with data that, that happens from time to time. And you want to make sure that if it's handled, how is it handled and what kind of alert do you get from that? Because if you get a restatement or a change in data and it just shows up on your database, you have to be, you have to, it's your responsibility ultimately to go pull it to make sure that you're displaying it correctly uh, on your application. So um, you always want to check with the data provider and see, hey, if those things kind of do come up, which it's inevitable that they will, um, if it's handled and how, how, how will you be known? How, you, how, you, how, will, you, how will you be notified mm. of that situation? Um, uh, as far as cleaning, again, the cleaning itself depends on what you're displaying and um, what your clients need the data for. So again, you don't want to go in and you're not going to spend time going and validating every price, every market change, every, every uh, new fundamental uh, reporting or something along those lines. But you do want to be able to have at least the wherewithal to find outliers and spot check them and make sure that you know, they match with what you can find um, by simply Googling the security and seeing some of the things as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so next question, how do I organize the data on my end? So let's say that you've decided that you need to download some data and you talked about historical um, versus real time. And so if a person is building a platform that is gonna have research um, versus just real time trading, um, and they need to, to download historical data, how do you, how do they end up organizing the data on their end? And this was actually the major question we had from this gentleman we talked to a couple nights ago. Um, he was asking us about the architecture of the data and he, he needed help designing the database. So um, what are your thoughts on figuring out how you want to organize the data on, on your end? Right, so um, with the stock, with, with the individual securities, depending on how much data you're getting, there's going to be tables that are going to encompass a lot of different things. You'll have your company metadata that'll be uh, set up in several different tables. You'll have your price 
uh, volume data that's going to be in, in a table. If you have fundamental and estimates data, those are again separate separate tables, and oftentimes each one of those uh, tables. Uh, I mean, there's I don't know uh, what is it three thousand or so different types of fundamental data sets that you can get from certain providers. So um, obviously, kind of getting all that kind of stuff together, and then there's the frequency, right? So um, data you get quarterly versus monthly versus uh, you know semi-annually and things like that, that's really important. Um, so um, you'll have to kind of get all that kind of stuff figured out and worked out um, as well. So um, I remember being, when, when we got data from um, one, of the, one of the first big providers that we worked with at Equium, I remember um, being really shocked at how many tables there were. So, and, and we were just talking about, I believe even from the start, it was like the pricing data, but you, you know, you think that when you think of pricing data coming from a vendor, you think more or less like a, like a, a spreadsheet, right? And you're thinking, well, it's gonna have these columns at the top, it's gonna have the tickers, and, and then um, it's just gonna have all the data sitting there in a table. Like, that's not how it works. There's, there's so many supporting tables, and oftentimes you'll have to, you'll have to cross-reference five, six, seven, eight tables to figure out what a certain field is, um, you know, what, what a certain field represents. And the data, the data when you look at it is not, you definitely can't just look at a field and say, oh yeah, I know what that is. Um, you know, if it's, it's, if it's a number or if it's a one or a zero, you know, you have, you have no idea what that represents. So um, it's, it's pretty shocking when you get a, a really, uh, a new data set, it's pretty shocking how many tables there really are. Um, all right, so, and then again, going back to, Organizing the data and downloading data. Um, a, lot of, a lot of people have the question of, um, should I just get data from the API when I need it? So, um, and this is what this guy was asking. He's like, do you think I need to have the data stored in a database or do you think I should just get it, um, you know, get it on the fly? And um, so what are, your, what are your thoughts on those two approaches? And, you know, maybe the situations when you might be, um, it might be necessary to, to have data stored and, and when maybe you don't need to. Right, so I'm pretty risk adverse. So I always like to have data stored. So that way, if something comes ever comes back, I can say, okay, well on the database or from the provider that I have, it looks like we got data and this is the price and things like that, that it showed. And if there was a discrepancy or an update or a change, we can kind of track all that kind of stuff back. Um, but if you're just looking at uh, maybe a theoretical situation where you just want people to look at stuff, maybe streaming is not necessarily a bad idea. Maybe you don't have this, the time or space to really um, focus on keeping track of all that data. And if that's the case and you want to just, you want to be able just to stream information to your website. Um, I don't see a problem with that. I just, I've never personally, I've always had a database where we stored and, collect, and collected data historically, whether it be five years, 10 years, whatever the case may be, um, or if it's just even one year or whatever, I think it's, it's relevant, but um, there's different thoughts on, on that, just depending on the type of client that you're, you're trying you're targeting and what you want to display on your application. Yeah. And, and just to piggyback on that, the, um, when you're talking about if it's streaming on your website, that means there's an additional factor of latency that, that gets introduced. And that is, that um, you're making an API call to their to their server, pulling back data. Do you make one API call and pull everything all at once, or do you make thousands and thousands of API calls per second to update all the prices all at once? So um, that's another reason to 
maybe steer clear of using those APIs, you could um, you could have those prices updated on your own website and and then be you know be pushing them from there. Um, and then the like to your point about being risk averse, um, you already own the data. You I mean you own it in a certain limited sense. You own it for the use case that you that you have in your contract with the data provider. Um, you don't own it to do whatever the heck you want to do with it, right? Um, but now that you own that data for your use case, you might as well uh, store it locally and have a, as clean a, and complete a copy as you can locally to give you more options. Um, and then to your point about risk, if uh, let's say the data provider's API goes down for one day, then what are you doing on your website, right? Is your website just, oh, sorry guys, um, you know, no stock prices today, have a great day. You know, <laughs> like that's probably not gonna fly with your user base, right? So um, anyway, just um, throwing that out there. And so that that kind of completes the questions we had regarding data. I think, I think we talked about a lot of things that will help someone who's interested in getting a FinTech app created. Um, there's a lot of questions regarding stock data uh, of the types of data sets that you need and the, the handling of the data. And hopefully this has been really helpful. I also wanna say that Ken and I are gonna to work together on creating a handout, um, a PDF file that we can share or maybe some graphics or something um, that we can also share on LinkedIn so that when people listen to the podcast, if they have additional questions, maybe we can steer them along all the different areas that they should be thinking about. So. Um, so I guess that's that. Ken, thanks a lot for chatting and um, we'll see you on the next issue. We'll see you next time.